You have heard the phrase undoubtedly. I wish that I could unsee that. It's usually used in humorous ways, right? And, and what we're getting at when we say that is that we wish that we hadn't seen something that has left an otherwise unfavorable impression in our minds. So sometimes we say, I wish that I could unsee that. Have you ever had a vivid impression made upon you? Has your, has, can you think back on your life and think of any times where something vivid happened that left its indelible mark upon you? Once when I was about, probably about 10 or 11, I was doing something that I regularly did with my father. I was the oldest, and we cut a lot of firewood, usually in the spring and summer, because we heated our house with wood. And my dad on this particular day, had climbed up high into a tree using the kind of spikes that guys use who climb the telephone poles. You know what I'm talking about. So he had gone up there with a belt on and strapped in and was using his chainsaw to knock down dead limbs. And I was at the bottom just pulling the limbs away and getting them ready for us to cut firewood. And on that particular day something that anybody who's ever done any tree work will know this term, he experienced a kickback. Well, some of you know what I'm talking about. I'm looking at the people that are nodding. A kickback is when a branch you think is going to fall. You do everything right so that the branch just falls, but it doesn't fall, it kicks back towards the tree. And he experienced a kickback, and the branch hit him right in the head. No helmet on. And I could still see his face. And he looked down at me. First of all, blood just immediately covered his whole face. But it wasn't the blood on his face that made the most vivid impression upon me. It was the look in his eyes. He said, help me. What have I done? I remember he kicked the chainsaw off and he dropped it for me to catch it. And that moment has left a vivid impression upon me. The role reversal that was taking place there. At 10 years old, I was thrust into the position of what do we do? John who is the writer of this gospel, who has been telling us this gospel account the whole way through, he is likely the best earthly friend that Jesus had. We're told that, he, that all the disciples ran away but that we believe that John and Peter at least made an attempt to stay in the vicinity to observe what was going to happen to Jesus. 
Remember we said that John was probably a disciple that knew the chief priest and was able to get into the inner court and brought Peter in with him. And that's when Peter's denials took place. And, and so John is watching his best friend that he has abandoned be treated the way that we just read Jesus was treated. And when Pilate brought Jesus back out to the public, and after Jesus had been beaten, his face was bloodied from the crown of thorns, his eyes were probably swollen from the beating, his clothes were torn, he probably limped out to the stage shackled when Pilate echoed those infamous words, Eke homo, behold the man. And I'm willing to bet that that image made a vivid impression upon Jesus' best friend and disciple, John. Titled this morning's sermon, Ecce Homo, that is Latin for Behold the Man. Let's look together at our suffering, dying friend Jesus, and let's allow the drama to leave its vivid impression upon our hearts. You with me? Behold the man. There's two features that are found in this phrase that are intended to leave a vivid impression upon us all. The first is this. Behold the man. Jesus is a real man. Jesus is a real man. Underline, capitalize, real. Jesus is a real man. And one of the ways in which we see the reality, the reality of his humanity is vividly displayed in the sufferings that Jesus endured. So I want to look at three aspects or three features to the suffering of Jesus that should leave an impression upon us. So, so if you're an outline taker, you're following me this way. Behold the man. Jesus is a real man. That's point number one. But underneath that category that he's a real man, we're going to look at the sufferings that Jesus endured. And we're going to look at three aspects of suffering that show us, that reveal us, real, reveal to us that Jesus is a real man. The first suffering we see is that he suffered physically. So the suffering was physical. It says right, right out of the gates, chapter 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Whipped him. The floggings that the Romans administered, according to their penal system were three different types. So just a quick explanation. Three different types of floggings. The first flogging or whipping was a painful one, but it was not debilitating. Minor crimes, relatively light offenses like vandalism, petty theft. If you did something like that and you got caught, you got this first level of Whipping. It was given to troublemakers with a severe warning following it. 
Second level of flogging was more brutal. It's given to criminals who commit serious offenses. There was another level, though. Third level. The third level was usually associated with another punishment like crucifixion. And that flogging was the most brutal, the most severe. They stripped the victim down, tied them to a post, and then they whipped them with a whip that had leather straps to it with pieces of glass, pieces of bone, pieces of metal attached to those thongs that would rip your flesh every time they struck you. The reason they, they reserved this last type of beating for those that were being crucified is that they actually felt like they were being merciful to beat you to almost to the point of death so that when they took you to the crucifixion, you would die rather quickly. It was not uncommon for people who received that third level of beating to die before they were crucified. So the question is this. Which one did Jesus get? First level? Second level? Or third level? It's a little bit of a trick question. John tells us that the flogging that that Pilate ordered happened before he had executed judgment. So he had not executed his judgment yet that Jesus should be crucified. So there are many that would say he probably didn't order third-level flogging if he hadn't even judged him yet, if he hadn't even sentenced him to judgment. The other Gospels actually tell us, Matthew and Mark tell us, that the flogging that Jesus got took place after the, the sentence was delivered. That was right before he went to the cross. Which one is it? Is the Bible contradicting itself? The answer is, he probably got level one first. And then he got level three right before he went to the cross. This one is probably a level one beating. It's a last ditch effort by Pilate. And this is where I feel sorry for Pilate because I feel sorry for him in some ways. I don't feel sorry for him in other ways. But he's trying, he's being politically ma- manipulated. And so he's trying to satisfy the bloodlust of this Jewish crowd. So he says, fine, go beat him level one. We'll give him the beating of a troublemaker. When you combine the beatings that Jesus received together, you get something. You get a picture in your mind that is vicious, that is vivid. It's visceral. Jesus suffered physically for his people. Jesus, if you're in Christ, Jesus suffered physically for you. The word became flesh. Truly became 
made. He was made like us, brothers and sisters. Jesus is our companion in the experience of suffering. He knows physical suffering. Some of you know physical suffering. David Dad, whose memorial service was held yesterday, died a, a painful bout with cancer. He knew physical suffering. He had a Savior who knew physical suffering. This is what makes, this is one of the, the distinctives of Christianity. You want to know what makes Christianity different than other world religions? This is one of them. We have a God who suffers with us and for us. You will not find that in any of the other world religions. A God that actually suffers in our place, a God that actually shares in your sufferings, a God that can actually sympathize with you because he knows what it feels like to suffer physically and he knows what it feels like to be tempted in every way as you are. You, if you are in Christ, have a Savior that can relate to you, who can sympathize with you, who's been where you are. No other God can do this. Other world religions, do you know what they do here? They fall silent here. They don't speak to the issue of suffering and how it relates to God. Islam has nothing to say about an Allah that shares in your sufferings. The most Islam says is that every suffering you experience is ordained. Well, that's not very helpful. Buddhism leaves you no place to turn for your consolation in your suffering. Jesus is a Savior who enters into our sufferings and shares in them with us. This, is, this should encourage you, some of you that are experiencing physical pain. I know that this room is full of people that are experiencing some physical challenges, physical pain. I read these words from Johnny Erickson Tata. You know who she is, most of you. Christian paraplegic, paralyzed from the neck down, 17 years old, diving into the Chesapeake Bay after having misjudged the shallowness of the water paralyzed for the rest of her life from the neck down. You ever wish you could have a do-over? This woman's written some amazing things. Here's one of them. I discovered that the Lord Jesus Christ could indeed empathize with my situation. On the cross for those agonizing, horrible hours, waiting for death, immobilized, helpless, paralyzed. Jesus did know what it was like to not be able to move. To scratch your nose. To not be able to shift your weight 
and not be able to wipe your eyes. He was paralyzed on the cross. Jesus knew exactly how I felt. He knows exactly how you feel. He suffered in this darkest hour so that he could stand with you in yours. His suffering was physical, but it wasn't just physical. It was relational. Jesus didn't only suffer physical pain, he suffered it at the hands of of others. Suffered relational pain. Not only was he abandoned and denied by his closest friends, but he suffered through the actions of others. Relationally. His own disciples are denying him, betraying him. People are, the Jewish leaders, treating him harshly. To put it starkly, Jesus was abused. In his efforts to save me and to save you, Jesus was not treated nicely. Today, Domestic abuse, child abuse, sexual abuse. It's coming out of the closet, right? You read about it all the time. Even in places where people would expect to be safe, like in families and in churches. It's happening. The statistics are grim on the number of children and women who are daily the victims of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. And if the statistics are right, then this room is filled with people who have experienced some form of abuse. Man, that should grieve us. And there's a need to do all we can to get us, we, you, the help that is available for those that have been abused. If that's you, you should talk to someone. Talk to one of your pastors. Talk to a friend. should try to help you. But this passage assures you of a Savior who supports you, who understands you, who stands with you because he's been there. Jesus' body was violated. Jesus is the God of the abused. can't wait for that day when it's all gone. And it will be all gone. 
Because Jesus suffered in our place. And he even now suffers with us. His, Jesus was a real man. He suffered. His suffering was physical. His suffering was relational. His suffering was also emotional. Look at verses 2 and 3. After they had him flogged, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. The purple robe is just a purple sheet thrown across his back in mockery. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with his hands. It's an act of gross mockery. And get this, the, the, the Roman soldiers are probably doing this more to get a rise out of the Jews than it is that they feel some contempt towards Christ. So we're going to, we're going to, you Jews are such troublemakers. We're going to show you what we do with, with this person that you want to crucify for being your king. We're going to, we're going to make him king and we're going to mock him as your king. The crown of thorns came probably from the date plant, which had thorns that reached up to a foot in length. And that's what they slammed on his head. The Lord wants a happy moment in a dark hour. By a funny little ringtone <laughs> to lighten the moment. But this crown of thorns, they, 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 they twist it, and it's got, it's got thorns on it, and they shove it on his head in sport, and they mock him, and they throw a purple sheet on him, and they hail him king of the Jews, and they slap him and beat him and whip him. And it makes an impression, I'm sure, on John. Then it says that Pilate went out again, verses 4 and 5. It says, I'm bringing him out to you because I don't find any guilt in him. But when they brought him back out, that's that vivid imagery where John sees where Jesus is stumbling out, eyes swollen, blood, crown of thorns. He's being totally mocked, brought to the stage, the Son of God, King over all. And they say those infamous words, Eke homo, behold the man. They don't know what truth they were saying. The whole scene is designed to make Jesus look more like a clown than a king. And this is where I get at this emotional suffering. Now let me back up before we talk just a little bit about the crown of thorns and this emotional suffering. We've already talked about how Pilate feels like he's being manipulated. He's found Jesus to be innocent, but he knows the Jews are pressuring him, that they're going to they're gonna play this up. They even start using the language of, you're no friend of Caesar. Go home and study that. Pilate's gotten stuck in a really difficult place. Because if he doesn't do what the Jews are manipulating him to do, then they're going to ratchet it up the chain of command, and he's going to find himself in trouble with the emperor. And he's already found himself in trouble with the emperor on numerous occasions. Church history actually tells us that Pilate, who was trying to avoid a, a very difficult, politically pressurized situation and to get himself out from under it, actually wound up 
creating the kind of stir that got the emperor involved. He was eventually deposed from his role of governor of Judea and, and, and sidelined, got off the corporate ladder, no more promotions for Pilate. And church history actually tells he was a depressed man who eventually committed suicide. So much more could be said. But he beat Jesus, and then they mocked Jesus, and he had a point in doing this. This is what Pilate was probably trying to do. He marched Jesus out to the Jews, behold the man. And he was probably saying something like this. Look at this humiliation. Look at this guy. Do you really think, you expect me to believe that he is a threat to the Roman kingdom? How can anybody perceive this as a threat? He looks like a clown. Come on. Isn't this enough? Let's be done with this. And Jews ain't done with it. But this hits. When we think about emotional suffering, it hits us deeply because there's nothing most of us hate more than looking like a fool. Nothing penetrates human armor like mocking laughter. like being the butt of the joke. Nothing stings our self-esteem like humiliation. Nothing stings our self-esteem like being humbled. Jesus was treated like a clown to conquer your sin and your death. Jesus was ridiculed to rescue you from sin's grip, to redeem you. Jesus was treated like a fool to free you from the shame and guilt and sin. Praise him. And I've been thinking about this crown of thorns. This comical crown of thorns. There's significance in this crown. It's a vivid significance. It's, made, it's, it's, it's intended to make a vivid impression upon us. Jesus came to be the Savior of the world, and that meant enduring the shame and suffering of the cross. If we're going to get the crown of life, then Jesus is going to get the crown of thorns. There is no other way. Now, I want you to ponder for a moment the, the crown that is Christ in eternity, the crown that he wore before the creation of the foundations of the heavens and the earth, and the crown that he will wear in all of eternity. 
He's the rightful king. He wears a, a crown of glory. And in his presence, we would fall flat. We would die because we couldn't withstand the, the light and glory that he possesses. There will be no sun. No need for the sun in the new heaven and the new earth. Why? Because Jesus will be there. So you get an idea of what his glory is doing. But Jesus can't be our Savior if he doesn't trade that crown of glory for a crown of thorns. He trades the crown of glory, the crown of a royal king, for a crown of thorns so that I can wear the crown of life. If Jesus only wears the crown of his deity, if he only wears the crown of his deity, then to the thief on the cross, Jesus can only say, you're cursed forever. Damn you to hell. But with the crown of thorns, he can say, today, you will be with me in paradise. If he only wears the crown of his deity, then to the adulterous woman in the story we read so vividly in John, he can only say, depart from me. Don't get near me. Wearing a crown of thorns, he can say, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. Peter in his denials, if Jesus is only wearing his crown of deity, what does he say? Get behind me, you devil. With his crown of thorns, he can say, I've prayed for you, Peter. And I'm going to restore you and I'm going to build my church on you. To us. What does he say if he's only wearing his crown of glory? Those that have continually resisted him. Those that continually turn away from him. What can he say? What could he say? Go wallow in the shame, of, in the mire of your shame and your guilt. But with his crown of thorns, he says to us, there is now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus and have been purchased freely by his blood you got to have a savior with a crown of thorns in his crown of thorns Jesus stoops low in humiliation he stoops low in shame he stoops low in sorrow all that he might seek and save sinners aren't you glad church apart from the cross God cannot save sin this is his plan for saving and rescuing sinners. It's a savior who embraces great suffering. Jesus was a real man. That's why I spent most of my time today, and that's where I wanted to spend it. But I want to say one other thing. I want to say that Jesus is not only a real man, Jesus is a representative man. 
The theme of the whole sermon is behold the man. Jesus is a real man. We know he's real because he suffered. He's also a representative man. The first aspect of Jesus being a real man and suffering, it's really an aspect that's, that's described in terms of the incarnation, which means God with us. This aspect, that he is a representative man, the second characteristic is explained in terms of redemption. God for us. God is with us. God is for us. Jesus is a representative man. Let me ask the band to return. The death of Jesus, what we have to remember, it was a judicial death. Even though it was trumped up charges, even though there was a lot of lies being thrown at him, even though the things they charged him with weren't true, he was innocent, he was betrayed. It was a judicial death. In other words, it was the conclusion of a legal process, a very faulty one, a very... Uh, corrupt one, but it was the conclusion of a legal process. We're going to keep preaching through this darkest hour and we'll keep reading about the process, the legal process that continues. Charges, though, were formulated. Charges were presented and judgment was passed on Jesus. The charges that Jesus died for were basically two, two charges. He was charged with blasphemy by the Jewish leaders, and he was charged by treason. That's the issue that he was charged for in the Roman trial. Remember, we, we felt that tension. The Jews knew they couldn't, couldn't get him on blasphemy charges because the Romans didn't care about those things. They would just say, well, go try him according to your own law. So then they said, well, wait, he's a political leader. He's, he's in competition with Caesar. And so that's a charge of treason. That's not a charge of blasphemy. Jesus faced two charges. The charge of blasphemy, the charge of treason. Jesus died. He hung on the cross as a blasphemer and a traitor. These two perversions, blasphemy and being a traitor, are at the heart of all human sinning. Sin is blasphemy. All sin. There in the garden, the serpent lied and he promised. You remember this in Genesis 3? If you eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened. Let's see a little Bible trivia. And you will be, somebody said, like God. That's blasphemy. You're not like God. You can't be like God. He is holy. He is completely separate. Our, he's beyond what we could ever imagine or explain. He's God, creator, ruler over all. We cannot be like him. And the lie that we bought in the garden was that we could be like God. And that is the sin of blasphemy. The essence of sin lies in man's arrogant effort to be like God. But sin is not just blasphemy. Sin is also treason. What's treason? It's an act of rebellion. In this case, it's an act of rebellion against God's rightful rule over us. We rejected it. 
The Bible calls us stray sheep, but that's not all we are. The Bible refers to us as Brandon shared, wandering prodigals, but that's not all we are. The Bible also refers to us as treasonous, rebel traitors caught with the weapons in our hands. Precisely, the charges of blasphemy and treason are the charges we face at the judgment seat of God. And they are the charges that were laid upon our innocent Savior, Jesus. This is a vivid scene. This is a vivid drama. But notice something. Some of the characters are going to begin to fade away into the backdrop. Annas. Where he at? Nobody cares about him anymore. He gone. Caiaphas. He'll be gone soon. Pilate. He's going to fade from the backdrop. It's like, it's like you're watching this drama. You're watching this play. And the lights are... are, are showing or, or being used in such a way that the, the, these other peripheral characters are just fading into the backdrop. And there at the center is Christ and someone else, God the Father. Christ suffering on the cross and God the Father in the seat of judgment, holy judgment. The cross will become an interaction before Jesus and God, where Jesus stands before the judgment seat of God. He comes to that place as our representative. He comes to that place as your representative. He comes to that place to stand in your place. He comes to face our charges. Pilate saying, what have you done? becomes God's questioning of Jesus. What have you done? Which is a questioning of us. What have you done? You've blasphemed me. You've committed treason. And the punishment that was ours was laid upon him. He took our place, church. He was condemned for us. He is our representative man. He died for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. Can anybody say amen? Pilate's words, eke homo, behold the man. They echo throughout all of history. How little Pilate understood his own words. Behold the man. There he is, church. Has it left a vivid impression upon you? Jesus. God with us. Jesus. God for us. Which reminds me of something John said at the beginning of his gospel. Behold. The Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the man. Amen.